welcome to What Editors Want, the weekly podcast where I, Philip Connor, interview a different editor from the world of publishing to find out what it is they look for in a manuscript. This week, my guest is Susanna Otter, commissioning editor at Quadril. Quadril are one of the leading non-fiction publishers in the UK, specialising in areas like food and drink, craft, lifestyle, design and popular culture. So far on this podcast, I've tended to concentrate on fiction, so I was delighted to get the chance to talk to Susanna about some non-fiction, and in particular to talk about some cookbooks. Susanna is the editor behind amazing cookbooks like Laura Goodman's Carbs and the forthcoming cookbook from the Quality Chop House, a restaurant here in London. But Susanna is a self-described editor of non-fiction of all stripes and sizes, and she's also worked with authors like Simon Amstel and Mel B., Stay until the end for a preview of next week's episode. But as for now, you join Susanna and I discussing the London Book Fair. Were you at the Book Fair this year? I wasn't actually. So um, I think as an editor, because of a lot of what I do is UK based, because we're a small publisher, which we'll get onto in a minute, um, I don't tend to do a lot with... Um, editors from the USA or editors from other countries I actually found that the book fair last year just made me feel like I was back at school and I wasn't in the cool kids group and I got really bad imposter syndrome and I just thought actually this year I'm not going to do it and I'm going to see how I feel and I feel really good I also did not go oh no way Uh, okay because it is as you say it is for um, for anyone who hasn't familiar with the book fair, it might sound like a really thrilling and exciting place, and I'm sure it is for some people, but by and large, it's people selling and buying books into different languages. Exactly. Um, and actually, that's not what either not what of us do. Either of us do. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think, interestingly, actually, this year, everyone I talk to, you know, someone would say, oh, do you want to go for a drink or do you want to escape and have a coffee? And everyone I talked to said oh my god you're not there that's such a good idea and I suddenly realized from being honest about it and actually saying like oh it just sends me mad it gives me imposter syndrome everyone was like oh me too so I feel like the book fair facade Mm. is 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 waning which is great and I think it's an amazing place for rights for selling for buying like there's such an excitement and if you're an agent or if you're a rights person it really is an essential part of your year but I think as an editor it can often feel like you're on the periphery and that's for me not a productive space yeah. I had a great time last year because I got very lucky that um, so each year LBF have a, like a visiting country or like yeah. a country highlight and last year was Latvia and I got to go oh, like, wow. in like January, February before it happened in April Amazing. and it was like freezing and there was like six foot of snow and there was like a group of 12 British publishers out there oh wow and so that was fun because I met those people and then all the yeah. Latvians coming to visit I think um, if, this year I didn't get to go to Indonesia mm, I think it was that's a shame <laughs> yeah. isn't it oh god we missed out next year yeah, let's hope it's somewhere it. good and we'll have that's to go that's how they'll bribe us into going yeah exactly that's <clears> yeah Indonesia you could have twisted my arm I think yes uh, so hello uh, we're at Quadril can you tell people a little bit about Quadril and what your job is here yeah so Quadril is part of Hardy Grant which is actually an Australian company and uh, it's about 180 people total so that's across everyone from publicity sales marketing production rights finance Um, and actually there's Hardy Grant UK who do a lot of gift and illustrated and cookery and then there's Quadril and Quadril historically has always done cookery Um, They used to do people like Gordon Ramsay, they do James Martin, um, they did all the A.A. Gill Woolsey and Brasserie Zadell books. Um, And I was brought on two years ago to start my own little part of the list, 
it's not little, I don't know why I said little. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 10 books a year, um, which are entirely led by my taste, and they're across cookery and non-fiction. Um, I say on my Twitter bio, of all stripes and sizes, but for me, I think what qualifies a book for my what qualifies is the wrong word for me what makes a book exciting to me is that I have a clear sense that it could be useful to somebody it could be usefully beautiful usefully trendy usefully thoughtful but it really has to have a clear purpose um and I sometimes work with authors to like find that purpose or sometimes things come and I'm like yep that's exactly what I want to do so books I've done in the last year include Mel B's autobiography that's kind of extraordinary uh that's a very useful thing to exist in the world yeah yeah so I'm really proud of it and it was a um, it's about her um, abusive marriage and it was a very steep very rocky learning curve on in so many ways but such an amazing book and I'm really really proud of it and then um, I've just published Anna Newton who's a YouTuber and edited life which is all about tidying up every aspect yeah, of your life which is everywhere at the moment yeah yeah it's done it's done all right yeah it's really really <laughs> nice um, and some others which I'm sure we'll come on to right it's a kind of in the, that kind of Marie Kondo zeitgeist at the moment yeah so I think we were we didn't know the Marie Kondo Netflix thing was coming so it's great that that's happened but actually Anna started her journey she she used used to be really into minimalism so she did Marie Kondo she did um the Japanese guy as well whose name now escapes me she did all the really minimalist things she had 10 items of clothing in her wardrobe and then she realized actually that she nearly threw away her tv remote and her husband (laughs) told her yeah kept the tv but didn't want the remote she didn't think it was useful and her husband then said to her actually like you can't wear a top three days in a row because come on it yeah you are a beauty and fashion blogger and it smells so and I think she realized that for herself as well actually and so this is about sort of something that's a bit less prescriptive than minimalism yeah and it's across everything so there's a budgeting chapter the one that I found most useful is actually like how to say no in your Mm. life just how to say no to things at work or how to say no to things in your social life how to basically um use all the processes she's obsessed with organization so anything in this book that you can think you want to organize there's something in there for you great yeah Um, and but how let's go back to the start. How did you find your way into books and into publishing originally? So I, I uh, was very lucky. I think is the first thing to say. So I graduated um, in two thousand and eleven uh, with a degree in French and English, and I thought. Oh, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I um, found university very all-consuming and loved the academic world, so I assumed I'd go on and do a master's. And then in the summer between graduating and potentially starting that master's, my uncle, who um, is is a potter and an author, needed... I, I'd been rese- helping him research his first book while I lived in Paris uh, the year before, and he needed help to put together an illustrated edition because the book had done very, very well and they needed someone, the publisher, who was Chateau and Windus, wanted someone to produce another book. So the first time round, it's The Hair with Amber Eyes. So the first edition didn't have very many illustrations in, um, even though they wanted to put more in because there wasn't the budget, because no one was expecting a book to, about Netscape to, to, do, absolutely, yeah. to do quite so well. <laughs> yes. And so then there was this lovely situation where they said, actually, we want to do a special illustrated edition full colour. And he said actually you know my archive you worked as my researcher do you want to work with the publisher on this uh and I said yeah I need some money and this sounds like a really lovely job Mm. and so I worked very closely with Chateau over that summer and as it was about an eight-week project um and it was a really hot summer and I was working in his studio and he was actually away for most of it and I would commute in from Hampshire but I'd avoid the traffic so I'd come in at like 5 a.m and work till night uh, till like 
11 a.m. in the morning and then leave again. But the studio was so hot and it was just a very kind of amazing but sort of like otherworldly experience. And as I was doing it, I realised I really love this side of books. I've always loved books. I've always loved reading. I've always loved editing other people. I'm very visual, so I've always been interested in covers. But I'd never... Um, although I've grown up around books, I'd never had any visibility on the publishing industry. Yeah. Um, although, obviously, my uncle is an author, but, you know, there Even was no so. sense of what this career could be. I yeah. went to a univers- I went to Oxford, so it was all about, like, being a consultant or being a banker or being a lawyer. And I used to go to these hilarious dinners. they give you free dinners, and so you'd go and, like, drink some nice wine or whatever, and someone would say, oh, you're not into numbers. And you'd be like, no, no. I just wanted the free wine. <laughs> yeah. um, so I had no sense of it as an industry, but as I started doing this project, I was like, wow, this is something I'd really love to do. And it came to an end, and as it came to an end, I asked um, the publisher, Clara Farmer, if... Um, Sort of, I was plucking up the courage to say, can I get some work experience? And she said, actually, there's a job going mm. um, as general editorial assistant at Vintage, which is part of Penguin Random House. And Chateau is one part of that sort of, it's a very August literary place. And I thought, okay, well, I'll apply, but yeah, as it? if. Mm. Um, and I mean, that is a lot of people's dream job. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very lucky and I got it. Um, and I actually asked, I did some research prior to this podcast because I think for me, I've always felt very lucky and for a long time especially those first two years I found it very weird that I got that job so I was very I wanted to know why I got it because I just didn't understand which sounds really falsely modest but um, I think having an overview of the publishing process from the other side was really useful because I saw how a manuscript came together I saw what was going on but I also proved myself as someone who could select the right images or move them into the right place and sort of had an instinctive knack for it but then also had real hard you know concrete experience of it yeah. so I think it's really rare thing yeah actually when you're in that entry-level job yeah there's very few places you can get it yeah and I yeah so I was incredibly lucky I mean I yeah I've, <laughs> I have a, <laughs> nice, no I have a very nice uncle who yeah. needed someone in Paris and then needed you know that's yeah. wonderful but um getting that job so I got that job in the September after I graduated and then I was at so I was the general editorial assistant for about a year and then I moved over to Chateau Mendes who are um my like still my dream publisher still love everything they publish so uh they do novels and they do non-fiction they do cookery like nigella uh they do authors like a.s byatt and rose tremaine um karen russell and sort of re and then non-fiction obviously the hair with amber eyes but also things like peter Ackroyd and uh it's just an extraordinary list it's a nice list and so i was there i think i was there for three and a half years and then as I as I began working more closely on books, I realised increasingly that though I my tastes as a reader are very literary and I really love, you know, I love um, stuff like Jenny Offill or, you know, quite naughty, hard sell feminist novels really mm-hmm. are my thing. Um, actually, my strengths as an editor and as an acquirer, I hadn't acquired anything yet, but in terms of what I would read and think, oh, that could do really well. It was the it was the lighter end. It was the more commercial end, and so I began to think actually maybe, as much as I absolutely adore like daily coming into contact daily with people like AS Byatt, which is kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps for me this isn't the right place forever. And then Vintage also has another list called Square Peg, who do uh, sort of quirky nonfiction. So they do things like the Hungover Cookbook and um, uh, the Weatherstones Carpet, ver- Weatherspoons, Weatherstones, I don't know where that is, Weatherspoons Carpet Book, and really quirky, fun projects. And they needed an assistant editor, so I moved over and started commissioning there. And that subsequently you ended up right here. Yeah. 
Yeah. And what was that like? Because I have that experience as well of, of being, a, the, being a completely different editor than I am as a reader and feeling, certainly when I started working in publishing, uh, guilt's the wrong word, but feeling like that I was somehow cheating myself. Yeah. Um, or that like people would be surprised to find me working yeah. on these kind of books and yet still getting a lot of joy from yeah. them. Yeah. Did you find that hard or was I, it? I did find it hard. I think I also found it hard because um, it's a real lesson in ego because mm. you can say you work at um, actually moving here, you know, is a lesson in ego because you can say you work at Penguin Random House and everyone knows what Penguin is. Mm-hmm. And so you don't, I, I've been to about a million weddings in the last year and you know, oh, I work at Quadrille. Oh, what's that? Mm-hmm. Pe- oh, I used to work at Penguin Random House. Oh my oh, God, Penguin. And yeah. you're like, oh my, but actually that's just all <laughs> bollocks. It doesn't, the day to day isn't recognised in any way sure. by what, you know, you aren't, you are so much more than what other people recognise in you. And mm-hmm. I think, especially in publishing, it's good to not have that kind of, not arrogance, but that kind of comfort. Mm. Um, I think that I was really helped in my realisation of what my taste, what my taste being different to my commissioning skills by really brilliant bosses. Um, I was, I've, I've always been really lucky and particularly at Vintage, I was really, really lucky to have people, I think, who were very good at saying, you're really good at that. Have you thought about doing more of that? Mm. And because that's quite rare in a job I don't think everyone always gets to hear that and I think if someone you really respect is saying that to you it's actually hard it's it's really stupid not to listen sure and especially in a kind of corporate structure where there Mm. is a very defined career progression potentially um it can be quite hard to get out of that if you think you want to do something slightly different yeah so I was really I think I was really lucky in terms of timing and that Mm. the square peg thing was a really natural you know I didn't have to move buildings I didn't yeah yeah yeah. I think my desk was like two two pods away from my yeah, old you desk. You can still have lunch with the same people. Yeah, exactly. I still have my girls, so it's yeah. fine. Yeah. And speaking of Square Peg, that's going to bring us on to our first book today, yep. um, which is Simon Amstel's Elf. Um, now, Simon Amstel, lots of people will recognise, um, and I just found a, his own self-written biography of himself, which I thought was really funny, which is, uh, you know, he's a comedian, screenwriter, actor. You might know him from the mockumentary about veganism, Carnage, or Grandma's House. Um, he did his first stand-up gig at the age of 13. His parents had just divorced, and puberty was confusing. Trying to be funny solved everything. <laughs> um, I also really liked, he uh, He also hosted some popular television programs, but is now too pretentious to list them here. <laughs> so yeah, most never people mind the Buzzcocks. Yes, of yep. course. And what was that like? Because, I mean, he even, like, he was... Uh, famous and mm. interesting and you know it, it's such a it's such a strange wonderful book in the mm. sense that it will you lots of comedians publish books yes but Simon Amstel's not your kind of run-of-the-mill comedian and no. absolutely did not make the run-of-the-mill book no so how did that come about so it came about by um actually he a few years prior had been approached by another editor who uh, who was then at, then at Penguin but then when I bought the book was at Vintage and at that point the time wasn't right for him but then um, he called this editor out of the blue one day and just said I'd really really like I think the time is right I've had this experience so the book is about um, his depression and what actually finally helped his depression Um, and we had just narrowly missed out on the Robert Webb book Mm -hmm. which obviously was published brilliantly by Canongate and I think um, it was one of those things where there was a moment around that book where you realised actually these comedians these comic memoirs which previously I think had been quite straight and quite celebrity publishing yeah celebrity publishing yeah and it, and it was changing shape and the Robert Webb was kind of the moment where you realised how 
that this amazing moment where you thought, oh, this can go in a completely different direction that I think no one's really thought about before. Mm, they can be much more intelligent and yeah, surprising. And yeah, yeah, and I think um, there's a kind of whole other like realm here that no one's really bothered to explore. So. I was very conscious of that book and thinking about like what could I do, who could I talk to, but there were also a lot of there was a lot of noise around other comedians doing those sorts of projects. Yeah. Um, and then this call came out of the blue, and Simon said, "This is what I want to write." And the editor uh, who was at Bodley Head said, "Oh, it's really actually not right for my list right now, but I think Susanna would really like this." And I met him and I talked to him, and actually he didn't have he'd never written anything down before. So he normally, when he does his stand-up, he uh, just has a dictaphone and he just workshops it on a dictaphone. Oh my god! Uh, so it was a leap of faith. Like we had, we had like four pages, um, but I had a structure. So I said to him, "This is what I would do," um, and I think it, in a way it's quite naive. And I, I've done it since with people who've then gone somewhere else with their structure. So I, I've um, stopped doing that at the moment of acquisition, um, but it can be really helpful. Um, yeah, of, of saying this is what I would watch. Yeah, what I would want. To yeah, um, it's interesting. That's like because uh, we get pitched a lot of books that are not necessarily too early but don't have quite the right material for you to get yep. a grip of it so yep. I quite often ask people to go, come back to me with like a chapter list or something especially yeah. non-fiction it gives you a much stronger feel for if there's a full book in it or can you know I know you've written three chapters but can you write the introduction for instance yeah you've got I think you've got to have a sense of how the book will hang and, and I think in this case because he I mean I've always I grew up loving him I grew up with a crush on him to be frank he knows this so it's fine I can say it publicly <laughs> um, he was one of my number one crushes as a teenager um, great taste from me mm-hmm. uh, but Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think because he was this it felt like such an exciting prospect both because of kind of the that area of publishing really coming through in a big way and because I thought this you know he's a name and he could really really sell which is obviously what you want from any book Um I've, I was like, I want to just see what I could do and like see what a book would look like to me. Mm. So it was a very, very involved process. Uh, we did a lot of it together um, and he, he did write the whole thing. There was no ghostwriter. Um, but it was a really lovely... It, I As a first commission, I think it was quite weird in some ways. Most people start off with something a bit smaller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but th- the difficult thing about making that leap from assistant to acquiring is that you will have done a lot of desk editing before you get to have your own book so a lot of the time you will have carved out relationships with authors but you just won't have been the person who put your name sure. to the bottom of a PL. so I felt um I felt quite like empowered to go for it because everyone was supporting me but I think also because it's not the first book you work on it's the it's mm. the like it's kind of almost like the next step up yeah, but you've yeah. already done so much work on other people's books you've already sort of I worked on Peter Ackroyd which obviously um, well, not obviously but is a big publishing program where they would just come in and that, but there would be a structure to them that had already been worked out in terms of what he was publishing when um, and so in terms of working out like a strategy and a structure for a book or an author in a career I felt quite confident in that and working out what we would do th- with this book mm. um, So was it quite a intimate long process it wasn't I don't think it was that long I can't really remember now I think it was about 10 months okay uh it was definitely very intimate but that makes it sad but we just got on really well I I think I have a um I like my authors to feel like that I'm on their team um and I definitely have had to learn how to not promise them the world yeah (laughs) um or not even promise them the world but be like yeah that'll be fine you know oh we'll make it seven colours and then be like oh god we can't make it seven colours it has to be black and white so that was something or that you're 
hopes and dreams for the book do not necessarily translate uh, you know they don't guarantee Waterstones are going to love yeah, it. Yeah, you know? exactly. And that so that's been something I've learned, but I feel like I was learning that up until, and this was the first book where, and I've, I I pride myself on very good relationships with my authors, um, and part of that is honesty. So we we would have these really honest discussions, and there were moments where, um, you know, it was like, how am I ever going to get past ten thousand words? But we did it, and we just mm. had a lot of conversations, and um, I encouraged him to talk to other people, and it, it was a really amazing process. But I think one of the things I love most about the book is how completely true to itself it is. It could have been turned into... I mean, we could have made it a lot more commercial, maybe. It's got a funny text design and it's got a very sort of... um, It's got a very distinctive voice. But I felt like it was something to be really proud of and actually the nice thing about Vintage and Square Peg is that, you know, quirky is good. Quirky is fun. And I was reading a profile of Simon just in preparation for this as well. And, like, but again, I kind of was, like, delighted to read it because ever since coming across him on, like, Buzzcocks, he was the first person who had, like, that strength of personality to make me watch it every week. Yeah, exactly. And his career has purposely a little bit not gone in a very obvious route where yeah. he's gone got a lead on a Netflix show or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Um and he's he spoke about doing in that that he likes being in control and he likes being behind the camera. Yes. But I, he just strikes me as one of those people who in 10, 15, 20 years we're still going to be seeing interesting things come out Absolutely. about and hopefully the book will also yeah. hold in good stead. I think it? I think it will because I think it's a very honest um approach to something that <sighs> some people aren't honest about I mm. think and it's it's a really psycho- it, it's bad to call depression a zeitgeisty topic but I'm going to say that it is because I think that's how we can you know our business is trends and it's a big trend for better or for worse everyone is talking about it but to write a book about how actually it wasn't any of the conventional stuff that helped you it was taking a, a hallucinogenic jug and drug jug a drug <laughs> not a jug um, in the Peruvian rainforest is there's a real honesty there and there's real integrity um, and like you say I think he does that for everything so it was a real joy um, I did leave just before it was actually published so it was one of those really hard things where it was such a labour of love and mm. that it was my first book and he is he's you know we still talk I really I will always love hanging out with Simon um and you'll never forget yeah, the first yeah book. exactly but it was a shame not to be there for the publishing that was quite hard yeah but yeah um and let's move on and talk about some books you've done since you've come to Quadrille yes. um the first one I've got here is what a time to be alone and what an absolutely lovely subtitle the yeah. slumflower's guide to why you are already enough yeah um, and for anyone who doesn't know who the sunflower is, can you tell us a bit? So about she it? is a 24-year-old girl from Peckham called Chidera. And uh, I'm going to get all the dates wrong, so I'm really sorry. But Go about three years ago, <laughs> I think she started this campaign called Saggy Boobs Matter, mm-hmm. uh, which is about how actually no one... We can see lots of flat-chested girls in the world and we can see lots of perky, big-breasted girls, but there's no one who's actually letting their boobs... If you've got big boobs, they have to be perky. Um, and she would take all these selfies of herself with her breasts in their natural state. And that's sort of where she started gaining traction. But actually what she does more than anything is, I think, promotes an idea of empowerment for women, particularly women of colour. Um, and that's her sort of real cause. And she has no a way of boiling down really important points into very pithy sound bites that I think are really accessible and really profound um, 
so yeah that's her yeah and there's she's got I, I mean I was on her website earlier and she's just got the most extraordinary collection of quotes about yeah. herself so from Elle the drum days glamour Harper's Bazaar Teen Vogue saying things like the millennial mastermind 50 of the best female speakers you know this is these are not um small publications no. or small statements no 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 she's pretty amazing I think she is gonna like and she continues to grow um, and actually we published her in June July last year and I bought the book the August yeah the August before so I bought the book in August 2017 um and how finished was it when you acquired it so it was uh it was a full manuscript it's not a long manuscript it's about 20,000 words um and it was sort of uh the book's also got all her own illustrations in it's um, really exciting and interesting and yeah again just a bit different and not and, and not obvious yeah well I'm, I'm pleased you say that I sort of read it, it it wasn't designed so we designed up it's a sort of four color so it's got pictures and it's got lots of different colors in it and um the thing that really struck me about the book was that she has these um amazing Igbo proverbs from her mother Igbo's them I think it's the predominant language in Nigeria and she is um of Nigerian descent and uh, they're amazing they're like he who wants the same haircut as John does not have the same shaped head as John and I just think and there were so many like they're very much they're a bit more matter of fact than the sort of wishy-washy British proverbs and she uses those as a jumping off point for stuff and I had seen um, real success with a book called Lost in Translation which is a sort of sweet book of explanations of proverbs and sayings from other countries with lovely illustrations and so I thought that's a really good anchoring point with which to pitch this book Mm. because it really isn't like anything else out there it is kind of more of a collection of statements and affirmations and ways to find um, yourself in solitude and, and find joy in solitude and be able to stand on your own two feet and it's from somebody who I think really is talking to a market that isn't being catered for by books right now so um and then I, I realised because of Quadrille's history as a cookbook publisher, we have this amazing team of designers in-house who love working on my books because they're something different. And it was like every page is a different design. And we just had so much fun with it. Yeah, because it's something that like, um, although we use designers for certainly our colour books, it's mm. not, um, we've got, you know, it's usually freelance or out yeah. of house. And it makes something like this um, just a bigger challenge to get. Yeah, to do. Um, I, it's definitely my... I don't have many edges. I work at a small publisher, but it's definitely my big edge um, mm. in terms of acquiring is that we can really devote time in a different way because if you have someone in-house, you can say, oh, that's not working for me and just go over to their desk yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than having those email conversations. And yeah. Um, and so what about, tell us about, about both of these books. Did this come through from a, an agent? Yes. And is that where you get a lot of your books? It is. So for me, I think agents are really, really important, I think, to have a triangulation almost between author and editor because, I, like I've said before, I really, I really pride myself on good relationships with my authors. But at some point in every book, something goes wrong, whether it's you sending a cover that just isn't right in their head or your jacket copy not being right. Um, there's... And it's always something. And it's also the pub similarly the other way, the... you know, authors are wonderful, but they're not always perfect. Sure. Like what if they want to move pub date or they want to push their delivery date back to have someone who is um, nego- not nego- negotiating makes it sound far more formal than it is. But I just think tri- triangulating that is really great. And three minds are better than one. I'm all mm. about teamwork. I'm all about I think agents have a different view on the industry and often see things like at the moment I'm trying to get a subtitle right. And actually the agent is. I think has come up with the best one which is mm. amazing but because I'm so stuck in the manuscript and the author's so stuck in the manuscript 
that's having someone who's just like slightly above yeah, it all. and has a but still has an intimate knowledge exactly, of it. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, so for me, agenting is really important. And so for any kind of anyone who's listening to this today and might be interested in writing a book along any of these lines, is that are you encouraging people, potential authors, to get agents? Yeah, I think so. I think if you, um, I think the thing to work out as a potential author is what market is your book going to talk to because if you want it to talk to a broad market if you want it if you can see um books that are similar to in bookshops and everything you know I try to publish things that aren't in the mold of other things and like I say what a time to be alone I couldn't see anything like it out there um but because it had these proverbs in I could see a kinship with something else and in order to pitch a book as an editor you have to be able to find a kinship with something because sales teams need something to put numbers against of course um and so I think if you can see a book that's like your book out in the shops find out who agented that book because normally it will be agented and go to them yeah I think it's really helpful to have someone on your team um, but I also think if it's a more niche book, if it's a really specialty craft book, for instance, we have a craft list here um, and they are very rarely agented because actually it's a really specific um, yeah, you guys subject. Doing, that's, yeah. yeah, you guys know, you you know your audience better than anyone and that's absolutely like your niche. So you talk to that niche and yeah, agents is kind of great because they are intentionally public figures so exactly. in a sense that you can put Simon Amstel agent and probably get a result yeah 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 and Chidera is the same actually um yeah all my books I think are agented yeah um and you something you just touched on briefly there is the that kind of sales idea of needing to put figures against something yeah sometimes that can be used against publishing to be a kind of derogatory thing of like you only publish things like something else but actually I mean how you just described it there you're not saying that this book is like the another book but you're saying you know you can go about that in a much more creative interesting uh, way of saying it's this meets that or I think it has a you know surprising comparisons are actually far more interesting yeah and I and I do think it's really hard with publishing because you know there are always those like stories of breakout bestsellers that nobody expected of course. so like the hair with amber eyes is the perfect example like, i don't think I, I, w- I wasn't there for the pitching but you know it's like a book about tiny japanese figurines yeah. but it's about a jewish family during the second world war and that is a great mm. topic in terms of sales and so uh for me it's this idea of kinship i don't want to publish a book that i can just say oh it's just like so like the new gone girl is the thing that's always used right yeah. there was Every thriller, I feel, is the new Gone Girl. Um, And that's not fair because I think thriller publishing is really incredible and the women I know who do it are incredible and have such deep knowledge of such a specialised genre. But they did feel like there was a time when everything was the new Gone Girl. And as an editor, I think your job is to work out why... So for me, instinct is really key. And now that I've had books that have been big successes, I feel I have a really good sense of how my gut feels when I read them initially. And that gut then needs to be translated into a good commercial reason because my books have to make money because otherwise none of us get paid. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a commercial reason and commercial reasoning normally lies in history rather than like, I just know it's good. Yes, that doesn't fly. (laughs) And and, and also especially with nonfiction. I think that's another reason I left fiction. I just couldn't bear novels you love just languishing yeah. I just found it so painful yeah, non-fiction does feel a little I mean I hesitate to use the word predictable no but you can 
link it to something existing. You can. More, I so. think you can. You can link it to more clear markets in a way. Yeah, because yeah. I did a, the, one, the first book I commissioned at Unbound was a book about figs. Amazing. Uh, and it is a book. It's one of those, again, there aren't any other books about their figs out there. Yeah. But I was able to link it to, it's one of those surprising history books. Yeah. So there's a book about cod that did really well. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. was actually a history and of, amazing of the fishery industry. Yeah, and there's one about salt, for instance. Yeah. And it, again, there is a, it's it's thinking like that, where it's, it's not a book about, yeah. you know, I'm not going to go and look for the, the dates book. And yeah. Like, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's I will. Like, yeah, I'll, exactly. see you, I'll see you there. But, we'll um, fight for it. You know, is able to pitch it like that, mm. where it's like uh, how it might not be exactly on the money, but it's someone treating this subject matter in the way that a different subject matter has been treated as well to some yeah. degree of success. Exactly, exactly. And speaking of books about one subject matter, yes. um, I have in front of me the cookbook by Laura Goodman, Carbs, yes, which is the next book we're going to talk about. Um, and you sent this to me like a couple of weeks ago and I've just been having such fun with it. Oh, I'm so glad. Because her, even from the very, like, I mean, at the moment you've got these kind of uh, see-through lips on the cover, yeah. but her introduction is so funny. She's such a good um, actor. About how, uh, you know, before the fun police took carbs away yeah. from us, she's just a really engaging. And it's kind of, I know this sounds silly a little bit, but it's kind of truth, uh, truthful to carbs in the sense yes. that it's a, it's a treat, but it's kind of quite fun and, you know, everyone loves them, but yeah, but it's just really great. Oh, I'm so pleased. Oh, thank Can you. you. Tell us a bit about that. Um, where where did that come from? So that just came. That came from an agent. Uh, Laura's agent is someone who I. Uh, she comes from an agency called Lutchins and Rubenstein. Um, her name is Daisy. I love her. She's great. They've got that amazing <laughs> bookshop. At the yeah, they've got that brilliant bookshop upstairs. Um, and it just it was one of those proposals that came in, and I've read Laura's writing for a few years, um, but and just read it and thought this is exactly the sort of cookbook that I love to read and I would love to publish it and I think the thing that really sold it for me is the fact that um, there has since been this whole wave of intuitive eating books um, which are all about working out what your body wants and not listening to the diet industry and actually oh, unshackling yourself right from you. food being good or bad and obviously clean eating was such a big thing a few years ago and there's been a backlash but what I loved about this book was it wasn't actually saying you know, actually I'm against clean eating. It was just pointing out that for, and I think it, I mean, I think it's for a lot of people, but I think it's definitely for women, especially carbs somehow over the last 10 years had become this demonized special thing. And the way she writes about that happening to her, and it's, I think there's a great bit in the introduction where she talks about when she was a teenager, the whispers reached her that carbs weren't good. (laughs) I know, and And, then not eating yogurt, or only eating yogurt till she was 19 or something. Exactly, and... And there's just such a joy in her writing, but I think there's also such a lack of pretension and such Mm. a deep understanding and care about how food, how we interact with food. And that's something that I really love. So one of my favourite food writers in the world is B. Wilson. And I think first, first, first taste or first bite can't remember the name of one of my favourite food books. But anyway, that's a really good book. Don't Google it, they'll find it. Yeah, and this does that in a different way. And then the recipes are just amazing. Mm. And um, I think a lot of people expected when I first sort of sent it round to, so you send round a book to publicity, marketing and sales when you want to buy a book. That's how our acquisition process works. I think they all thought it would be sort of um, almost munchies style. So those really indulgent, like double treble mac and cheese with muffins on top. And actually what it is, is a really phenomenally good cookbook that you can use every day. Um, yeah, because when you take a subject matter like this, it's all, it would be too easy yes. to say like, oh, go on, yeah. you know, get, uh, but in fact, it's actually say, trying like 
carbs have a place in a diet. Yeah, Let's exactly. Let's use them, not... This it, isn't like a, a dessert or a chocolate no, cookbook. And I think there was a real... Re- she has a real refusal. Um, she doesn't wink naughtily at any point. There's no yes. kind of like, oh, go... As you say, oh, go on then. Yeah. And there are some really indulgent recipes in there, but in the same way that there would be in any, like yeah. in a Jamie Oliver or in a Nigella. It actually is a book for every day. Um, and in terms of the aesthetic, uh, Laura was a dream author she was so visual she knew exactly what she wanted and we came up with this kind of dream team of uh we had an in-house designer but um it was something where she was really specific about color so we had really fun time working out the exact color palette and um the cover was something that the designer just sort of sketched out and Mm. i looked at and i thought this is just the dream Mm. for me and it worked and it was kind of a dream on that level and what is the process for making a cookbook like that do you have to try out all the recipes and make sure all the measurings are right Um, and like what about you know even uh, like when we get pitched cookbooks for instance there's always a slight um, because we're not especially cookbook or you know in the same way yeah. we don't have in-house designers there's always like oh will it need photography uh, What's, yeah. so how does it work here when you guys are, do so many like are you just built for them What's I the think point? we are built for them um, I used to do them at Square Peg and we had the set we didn't have an in, we didn't have we had a we have an amazing in-house design team at Vintage. They are like world class as they are here, but um, vintage, you know, vintages represent rep, reputation really precede them. Um, but they do covers; they don't do insides. As and also, they had a huge amount of work to do, so it was never possible to get them to also do cookbooks. Um, I think here they are set up to do them in that you work really closely with a designer on the book. So the designer is the person who does the logistical stuff, like book in the photography, negotiate the photography fees. If there is going to be an illustrator, find the illustrator, do that. And they are, um, in terms of how the design process works, it can be really, really collaborative. So with this one, there's a lot of Pinterest boards. There are always a lot of Pinterest boards. Um, <laughs> Propping up the industry I, yeah, Pinterest boards. Yeah, and I kind of... I, I uh, like I I wouldn't mind if I I don't know why they ever would be but you know if my emails were ever leaked fine there's nothing in them that there's no skeletons in my closet but if my Pinterest boards were leaked like authors would see the stuff that I pin before they start pinning and they'd be like this woman does not understand the book because you go in all sorts of different yeah, directions yeah, yeah. and you I have to start yeah you have broad. to start somewhere um, but with carbs what happened was um, we had an initial design meeting with Laura and her agent and we brought in she brought in everything that she loved that she really wanted to have in the book and it was very clear from the beginning that um, she had a really clear sense of how she wanted the book to look and it was something I really trusted in because I trusted her writing and I also really trusted I just trusted her Mm. and I think so did the designer so then it was a very collaborative process sometimes it can be a bit more hands-off from the author's side so I'm um, the cookbooks I'm doing this year have very much come from us uh, briefing a designer or a design studio so us being me and the designer in-house and then us going to the author and saying, this is what we think it should look like. But mm. it can be one or the other, but it's always... And then photographer... There's so many things in a cookbook. There's so many things in a cookbook. That's why I only do two a year. I find them... It's mad. Um, uh, photographer, it always kind of goes hand in hand with the designer. Sometimes it can take a few times to get it right, but mm. you have a short list, you send it to the author. And then recipes and testing. I wish... I wish we could test every recipe. I think every cookbook publisher wishes they could test every recipe, but unless you're... I mean... I think unless Jamie Treble treble checks his. Wow. Yep. But that's because his brand is built on... I'm sure he's not doing it personally. No, and it's better. Well, I think he he definitely writes... No, he's not. But he has a team who do them, I know. I think. Well, that's what it was the case when I last 
heard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is because his brand is built on the recipes working. And otherwise, what I would do, I'm not a great cook. Full, full disclosure. My <laughs> husband. This is the divide between reader and editor. Yeah, exactly. Again. It's like exactly. cookbook publisher and, and cook. Yeah. Cook. I'm okay. My husband is a really amazing cook, and I actually use my mother-in-law an awful lot because right. she loves cooking and also used to be a chef. Yeah. And when I say I've been having fun with this carbs cookbook, what I really mean is my girlfriend has. See, there we go. It's an honesty. <laughs> Editors don't cook clearly, um, but I can read a recipe and know if it's going to work or not, and mm. I think you have to have a sense of that but you also would send it to a specialized copy editor yeah who's gonna say do you mean a tablespoon yeah, exactly. are you sure or not or you know oh i would never put the milk in at that point because it might curdle oh my god well that's yeah. specific so don't like you know it sounds obvious but they're not just reading they're thinking no they're thinking yeah. and they're, they're a real gift when you find the really good ones and you cling and we have a, obviously we have a really good bank sure. of them here and while we're talking about cookbooks let's go on to something that's coming out is it later yeah. this year or yeah it's November year? this year um, which is the quality chop house cookbook yes um, the amazing restaurant on Farringdon Road yes it is yeah um and you know this is a, a slightly different proposition in that it's a cookbook born out of a very specific place yes how does that work are you te- are you teaching the customers how to eat the food they've or you know what I mean? yeah i think um i mean restaurant cookbooks there was a time when they were really successful so there was obviously this iconic oh. st john cookbook yeah, otter lengi otter lengi um I can't now think of any others. All those ones. Yeah. All those ones. Mm, yeah. um, but uh, in recent years, I think uh, some have people have tried to sort of ape that success and not quite made it. So when I now look for a cookbook, um, I don't really mind if there's a restaurant attached or not. But with this one, I think it's got such a specific sense of place. And it's been a restaurant for 150 years. Mm. There's always been a restaurant on that site. Um, and it's got this kind of incredible team of two really the owners can really write they write beautifully about food and about what they wanted to do in this place which is really seasonal very british which like it or not is the time that we are in and i don't think only british in that they believe in local food rather than anything else just to be clear (laughs) i don't know their political views um and a really really talented chef Mm. um but it's about being able being able to cook things properly so um in the proposal there's a great recipe for a chop a pork chop and how to cook a pork chop properly and i know not everyone is eating meat anymore but the people who are i think are more and more attached to the idea of eating good meat and our office is right around the corner from borough market and i've definitely um a few times now gone to the ginger pig and bought something really special and spent like the worst one was thirty pounds on a chicken, oh. and then um, really fucked up the cooking. Of the oh chicken. no! So you need a cookbook. I need a cookbook that will le- that will help me actually know what to do with sure. this really good meat because I want. I don't. I don't. We eat meat. You don't like want to ruin week, it, but you don't want to ruin it. Yeah. And so we've got we've got two cookbooks here. Um, so one coming from a restaurant, one coming from a food writer. Yes. So anyone who's out there, for instance, who might be a chef, for instance. Yes. What is the what would you recommend? What do you tell people like that who you know some cookbooks are, for instance, something we get pitched a lot, but okay. um, but um, do rarely, partly because we're not built for them. Yeah. Um, but also partly because it's a very challenging marketplace to get into unless you have some sort of existing network or fan yeah. base or audience either around you yourself or your restaurant or you know your blog or whatever yeah. it may be do you think is that like what is that your um like i mean do you ever just get a manuscript for instance from a complete unknown and you're like wow these recipes are so good i have to do them i just think unfortunately not i would yeah. love i would love to be able to say we did but i just think um 
I'm going to get, I think I'm going to go on to a real tangent, but I'm going to go with it. So recipes are this really, really esoteric odd thing in that no recipe is actually the thing you end up cooking. Because if you're a really experienced cook, you'll look at a recipe and get an idea and use it as a jumping off point. Or if you're a less experienced cook, you may use that recipe. But then as you get more experience, realise that um, the kind of the proverbial example here is onions. You know, how long do you sweat down onions for? Do you like onions don't soften in 10 minutes, but actually they can on an industrial burner. So, uh, you know, a recipe is only ever a guide rather than an, a real thing. And who owns a recipe? Mm. So if you see uh, the same recipe, but slightly different in four different books, like yeah. with a different herb yeah. and a we've, slightly uh, different cooking time. We've published a cookbook by John to me. It's called The Plagiarist in the Kitchen. Exactly. Yeah, is, that's. I love that book. Yeah, um, there is no such thing as original. No, yeah. and, and that's, I think, what makes cookbooks really hard because you can think you've got the definitive version of something and but unfortunately unless you've already got a proven audience who is saying oh yeah that is the definitive one who already buy into it i think it's really hard to get that word of mouth sure um success i think if you do a single subject book you've got more of a chance um laura has got a really great following anyway and um is really known for her food writing and has won loads and loads of awards Mm. Um, but it's got a specific purpose yeah again to go back to the purpose yeah it's got a purpose and it's got a point and i Mm. think a broader recipe book is much harder um and it has to have a story it has to have something behind it so um, what are you going to write in the introduction here's some things i like to yeah exactly and and that can work if you're you know i think if you're like that roly lee book that you guys did i absolutely love and that is here are some things i really like to cook sure or simon hopkinson does it better than anyone and is brilliant but you have to have a name to be able mm. to do that because it has to be a trust thing. You've sure. got to trust someone. That's to come back to the recipe thing. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I knew I had a point. I knew I'd get there. Um, you've got to trust the cook. Yeah, you've got to put down, if you're putting down 15 quid or 20 quid, you want to know that these recipes work. Yeah, and you don't want to ruin your 30 pound chicken. No, you really <laughs> don't. It was so embarrassing. Was and I think day. it's kind of, it's easy to look at that pessimistically saying mm. you need to have a name. But actually, the world we live in with the internet and social media mm. things, it actually does give people who are just at home cooking the chance to start a YouTube channel and yeah. to build an audience. You know, you don't have to suddenly cook at a restaurant in Zone 1 in London. No, and and I think you definitely don't have to. And I think if you do cook at a restaurant in Zone 1 in London, the way you cook is very different to someone at home. And then the... In your industrial oven. Yeah, and then, and then the gift is in being able to translate those recipes, which is what the Quality Chop House does so well. But mm. um, I don't think it's a reason to be pessimistic. I think if you're being... I, I actually, I'm quite strict on this because it is a conversation I have a lot. And I just think if you're being pessimistic, you really haven't understood the industry you're trying to go into. You haven't understood what it is to try and sell a book. Mm. You haven't bothered to think. You haven't bothered to sit down and yeah. look at the industry and look at the books you have on your own shelves. Yes, that's always what I... So, you know, when you um, quite often get pitched a memoir by someone who I'm sure has their story has loads of value and what I'm saying to them is not that your book is poorly written or that your no. life story doesn't value, but that it's not a commercial prospect. Yeah. And, when, and the kind of proof of that is what books have you bought by people you don't know exactly and that's the thing and you have to and I think it's so it's an ego thing again it's like and that's why I I think it does sound harsh and I'm sure people will roll their eyes when I say it but I do think it's incredible it's not it's willfully naive and actually willfully ignorant to get cross about it yeah it's my view but I also think it's slightly how you view publishing what you view publishing for yes so if you are out there and you think publishing's job is to publish the best five or ten percent of books written yes that's not actually true what publishing is doing is trying to sell books yeah <laughs> exactly so there are loads of things that have absolute value 
merit quality, yeah. but it, we're not. Um, and it, what, the, the joy, but also the challenge of working in publishing is that there is something akin to libraries and to public good attached to it. But unfortunately, when you know, as you were saying earlier, you have to bring in books that are going to keep your company yeah. open and to earn people's salary and to make the author some money. Exactly. And I think every so often you can do a really special little gem of a book that you know won't sell and and hope it wins a prize. Sure. And that's a lovely thing to do but it's hard for the author as well because the other thing is like writing a book doesn't end when you submit your manuscript because no. then I'm going to come back to you and say oh can you just I just oh can we have a bit more can we have a bit less yeah, can we yeah. oh did you think about this or oh, what about this and then there'll be a copy editor and then there'll be a proofreader and then there'll be a publicist well, and then there'll be a publicist <laughs> and while that's happening there'll be a cover and then there'll be jacket copy yeah, yeah. And it's like, only just starting it's really. only just starting because yeah, it's not over. Yeah, it's going to be the next two years of your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and on that note, yeah. so we've got one final book to talk about, um, which I'm really excited about. Oh, I can't wait you. This, which is Mixed Feelings, uh, Exploring Modern Life and the Internet, One Discussion at a Time. Yes. Um, I guess this is closest to your uh, Slumflower book yes, in terms of things we've exactly. spoken about. Um, where, did it, where did this come from? It came from The Good Agency, am I right? Yes, so it did. It came from Nikki Chang at The Good Agency. And... Um, one thing we haven't actually spoken about, uh, but I will just say, because I'm very <laughs> proud of it, is that my list, so I do 10 books a year, and I, when I started, wanted half of them to be by BAME authors, and okay. I have achieved that. And it's not something I like to say publicly, or sort of, it's not what my list is predicated on. But for me, um, I was very, I'm very conscious that I grew up with books that I saw myself in. Mm. Um, I'm only now very conscious of it. Obviously, it wasn't, I'm not like, I wasn't born woke, you know. <laughs> um, um, I really want to make sure everyone else has that too. So this is my small way of trying to do that. So um, this is an amazing proposal by Naomi Shimada and Sarah Raphael. Uh, uh, Naomi is a advocate for joy on the internet, I think is how I would describe advocate her. Advocate for joy. Advocate for joy. I'm, yeah, part. exactly. I'm not sure she, I, well... That's not her. That's not her that's official job title. That's her. me <laughs> pitching her, and Sarah Raphael, who is editor in chief of Refinery Twenty Nine, and um, we've been talking about the internet actually. And I think that the internet is such a big part of everyone's life. We all love it. We all hate it. We all want to be on it all the time. We all want to get off it all the time. It gives us all mixed feelings. And this was the first book that I read where I really thought they had actually tried to get to grips with that, but not in a kind of intellectual way. Like I thought Will Store's Selfie that Piccadilly did last year. Yeah. such a good book and such a good way in but a really intellectual way in and I think that's brilliant but um, not the thing that I'm good at publishing and what I wanted was something that did that kind of rigour and that kind of well is it good is it bad weighing it up not coming down really hard on either side and this to me does that so it's um, both of them write um, every chapter is an essay from both of them and sometimes there's dialogue with other people um, so it's the internet and love the internet and work the internet and leisure the internet and politics I'm going to forget some of them but that's the kind of idea there's kind of and each one takes this topic and they write an essay on it and um, that essay can be really personal sometimes they're really personal ones sometimes they're more detached journalistic ones and then they have other contributors as well so it's almost like an annual of the internet um, but I think there's just so much interesting stuff in there and it actually just makes us all... So I've given up Instagram 
for two weeks during London Book Fair because there was a book that I really wanted that I didn't even see that I saw on Instagram on on last Saturday and just found so upsetting and then thought if I hadn't checked my Instagram I wouldn't Mm. have seen it so I'm just going to get off it for a bit but it means I'm missing all sorts of things one of my best friends just had a baby so I'm not seeing any pictures of the baby because they're all on Instagram you know you kind of oh it's all mixed and our work is all mixed up in it we've just been talking about having followers for books and how that works there's just so many different factors and uh, I've gone on a long time about this book now I know what you mean it's not uh, I don't have one or the other like I I, I, the grey zone is so non-existent almost you know I want to be off it I want to be on it yeah Um, 20 times a day alternating between the two so Uh, I'm really interested in this yeah Uh, yeah and I think they really get how to talk to people and talk on a really like universal level there's no sense of sort of coming at it from on high so Naomi has a huge amount of followers on the internet and um, has been on it um, so I started following her when I was about 17 on MySpace wow you're getting MySpace. all your teenage crushes yeah I know well she yeah so yeah her and Simon it's like the holy and and, the, and a Spice Girl I've done really well <laughs> um, that's why you go into publishing right no that is not why you go into publishing just to be clear um, it's just a perk it's just a real perk um, and, and a perk actually the worst is when and this happens all the time is you think oh my god this is going to be amazing this is by someone I've always loved and then you get it and you're like oh no okay well oh we got the chance to publish Kathy Burke oh. um, Unbound who I loved yeah. and Harry Enfield and everything else who is the nicest woman I bet she, I love her Desert Island Discs yeah, it's so good that was such a that's magical thank isn't god. it thank <laughs> god yeah they, they can not always turn out to be like that but Naomi is amazing and um, I think you know she's been on the internet for a long time and she's been very good I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers at that on the internet for a long time like I don't know what does it mean to be good on the internet but I think she's really honest about Mm. that great well I'm looking forward and that's coming out in September this year hopefully yes fingers crossed yes was getting there great so that um thank you for talking us through those five books um to end I'm going to ask you one more question which is actually to change hats and put on a bit of a reader hat maybe I love my reader hat um what books of recent times have you really loved what have you what do you wish you could have published or worked on so um I've got two I've got one novel which I don't really mind not having worked on because as we discussed novels are not Quadril's bag they're not my they're not my bag they're not Quadril's bag and they're not my bag for working on but for reading certainly and it's called The Snakes by Sadie Jones um and it is just a brutally good book the ending had me I was like kneeling on the floor and all like clenched up and sort of in a ball um it's about it came out I think a couple of weeks ago it is about a woman and her husband who live in a kind of modest flat in London but her parents are very very wealthy and her brother lives in this farmhouse in France and her and her husband are a bit stuck they're very proud they've never taken any money from her parents um but they've always kind of been looming in the background and it's just about the kind of corrosive power of money and they basically it starts with them going off to see the brother in the south of France and everything really unravels from there there's there's a lot of unraveling that goes on um <laughs> but for me it just wouldn't let me go it just i could not stop reading it i read it in 24 hours and i think um those books don't come along that often and when they do they're just such a joy even if they are incredibly intense and incredibly haunting Mm. um it sounded like like there was actually a snake constricting you yeah no genuinely that's how i felt and i am i mean it's published by chateau so i i 
got a proof and um, I actually emailed my friend who worked on it afterwards being like what have you done to me like this should <laughs> come with a warning yeah. and I feel like the last book that did that to me was A Little Life which I did not enjoy and I found too um, manipulative and this but this to me did that same thing where it tapped into a really primal part of me but in a much more realistic way mm. and it felt I know it really divides a room but I could not get along with it yeah this I think I haven't used that word before manipulative but I I, I know there's a lot of people listening to this who are going to yeah. be like, I love that book. And I think it's great but, if you love uh, that book. I think books that divide opinion, like I tweeted about the snakes actually the other day and said it's, for me, it's like the good version of A Little Life. And people were like, oh, I loved A Little Life. And la, la, la. It's like, I don't, I'm not saying yeah, you're not yeah, allowed yeah, to love it. Me, I'm yeah. just for me. But if you did love A Little Life, you will love the snakes. Mm, and if you didn't more. love A Little Life, <laughs> you will also love the snakes. Um, so that is amazing. And if you um, want, sorry. yeah, no, no. I was going to ask you what your second book is. Yeah, my second book uh, is, uh, I think it's called, it's called Open Up, The Power mm-hmm. of Talking About Money. Oh. And it's actually another book from Nikki Chang. And I really wanted to buy it, but actually uh, it felt it had overlap with Anna Newton, who has some great stuff about budgeting. Um, but the difference, uh, Open Up is just a book on money and it's by a woman called, I think, Alex Holder. And it's all about the emotional power of talking honestly about money and being honest with your friends about your salary and being honest with... Uh, everyone about where you if you have a mortgage where you got the money to buy a house mm-hmm. from and the power of actually saying to people this is how much I earn this is what I'm doing this is where it all comes from this is where it all goes um, it's about being honest with your friends your colleagues junior like younger people in your profession and what I loved about it is that she starts it by saying what her book advance was so I think it's a really interesting wow read. so she's putting her yeah, money she, where yeah, her she, mouth is she literally <laughs> put her money where her mouth is but it right at the end there's a section on budgeting and I should say now I am hopeless with money I am if I have it it just goes I just do not I'm just I'm not good with it um in my personal life professionally I'm fine um but um So I found it really, really liberating to have a sort of different approach to it, which was about your emotional response rather than anything more sort of structured and structured. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening too. Tune in next week where my guest will be Mark Richards, publisher at John Murray. We'll be talking about some of his wonderful fiction like Andrew Hurley's The Loney, Mick Heron's crime series, and my favourite, favourite book from 2018, Jesse Greengass's Sight. Um, We'll also be talking about his work with the Nick Drake estate um, and the rise and potential pitfalls of autofiction. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can find me on Twitter at whateditorswant um, or drop me an email email at whateditorswantpod at gmail.com and if you've enjoyed the show it really does make a big difference if you can write a short review or subscribe wherever you find your podcast thank you